Welcome to the Faculty Podcast brought to you by Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I am a professor of Old Testament here and president of RTS Washington. I'm joined by my colleagues, Dr. Grace Sutanto, professor of systematic theology here. Hey, Gray. Hey, great to be here. <laughs> and Dr. Tommy Keene, our academic dean and professor of New Testament. Hey, Tommy. Good to see you. We also have a special treat today. We are joined by Dr. Karen Swallow Pryor. And we are going to be discussing a class that she's teaching here at RTS, but kind of using that as a jumping off point to talk about a lot of other various and sundry topics that she and we are all interested in. Welcome, Karen. It's great to have you. It's great to be here. Well, thank you. And we uh, are going to get started with Dr. Tommy Keene. He's going to start off the conversation, give a little bit of a background about our guest and get us going. Well, I'm, I'm so glad to have you here. And I, actually, I've had a couple of students over the last couple of days come up to me and say, thank you to, to me that, that, that you are here. And I, yeah. I, I can't take any credit for that, but we are really glad to have you here. And not the least because it does fulfill kind of a, a dream of mine to to bring more intelligence about the the you know about the English language about English literature about metaphors and images and poetry into the classroom and especially the seminary classroom. Uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, Karen is the research professor of English and Christianity and culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Um, and I will say, I mean, I came across you, as I think many have, uh, because you're one of the bright lights on Twitter. You're one of the gracious and uh, engaged uh, uh, tw- uh, Twitter one of the forces, participants. Forces for good. Forces for good, <laughs> that's right. Um, but uh, more importantly, a publisher, of, a co-editor of the Cultural Engagement in 2019, and, these, uh, and also editor of these beautiful uh, editions of classic uh, literature. Um, I've got two, you sent me two volumes very graciously, um, and they are wonderful. If you're looking for good, beautiful, and also annotated entry points into some of the classics of literature, mm. I would highly recommend these. They're, they're wonderful to, to read and to think through, and your questions and comments throughout um, are very engaging. So we're glad to have you, and, but I thought we could start with your class here, uh, Christian Poetics. Sure. And give us the give us the mm-hmm. story behind this and uh, what you do in the class, how it came to be, significance, mm-hmm. all of those kinds of things. Yeah, I would love to tell you about this class because it's actually one that I created a number of years ago mm-hmm. um, to offer first as part of it. It was a cornerstone um, course in a graduate curriculum and master's of art in English. Um, and there is a story behind how I and why I created this class. But let me first explain what poetics is, because a lot of people hear the word poetics, and they mm-hmm. think it's about poetry, um, which it can be about that. But really, poetic the term poetics comes from Aristotle's classic work, Poetics, in which he sort of examines in his typical Aristotelian way, um, what makes good literature of his time function. And um, he actually defines, um, and he sort of coins the term in Greek translated into English poetry, by which he means literary art. So poetics is really like the study of the nature and function of all literary art. Mm -hmm. 
poetry, drama, fiction, all of it. And the reason why I developed a whole course in this is because um, because I needed to learn it myself. I was actually at the end of my PhD program in English at a liberal state university where I was the only Christian I knew of. There's a lot of hostility toward Christians. I didn't feel comfortable there. I was, you know, just trying to finish. <laughs> and um, I was taking a, a, a class with a professor that I had um, grown to love and uh, respected me, even though I was a Christian. And it was a class in writing reviews. So we were reading like popular fiction, watching popular movies, and then we were assigned to write reviews. He was teaching us. This was like before the internet, you know, and so we were, you know, there wasn't so much out there. Um, and I came to class one day and my classmates were really frustrated and upset. And they started complaining to the professor that they were incapable of writing a review mm -hmm. because how could they determine what was good or bad? Yeah. <laughs> and I realized I, as a Christian that that we could do that, but I had no answer for my mm. classmates. I did not know how to answer mm. that. And so I left that class frantically doing research, making phone calls, um, you know, sending emails to the very few Christians I knew. There's actually one in particular who was writing about literature from a Christian worldview and perspective. And I just, I had to find an answer to that question. So I began then. And so when I finally, you know, finished my PhD and took a teaching position at a Christian university, and had the opportunity, I said, I do not want my students mm -hmm. to struggle with that same question because just as we do have guidelines for objective moral truth, there are, it's harder, but there are objective qualities yeah. of art and literature that determine whether it's good or bad. And that's what we're talking about this week. That's what I, this paper my students have to write after we meet and read and discuss is a paper um, telling me how you know how they as a christian will judge whether and how literature is good or bad mm. wow oh that's exciting that's exciting <laughs> so and and you're doing it i mean this is what's exciting to me is that you're doing it in a seminary classroom mm -hmm. so not just general uh, something that probably every good human needs to know but right. uh, you're not speaking to just general christians you're bringing this into you know, people that are training for uh, pastoral ministry, training to be church leaders. W what do you think of the value is of that skill set, mm. the skill set of being able to read, think through, analyze, critique the, the uh, poetics, you know, the, the, this literary art for the church? So, I mean, we engage in this kind of thinking every day, all day. We know we may not be reading Dostoevsky and discussing it with mm -hmm. parishioners, but we're still ha engaged in conversations about maybe the latest television show or, you know, music or TikTok. We're, you know, we're engaging in poetics all the time. Mm -hmm. And so to fruitfully guide uh, those who might come to us or even our, ourselves in our own lives and set examples, um, we need to hold in tension um, the same things that we do with great literature, which is that it's, you know, it's not only Christians who are able to communicate truth, goodness, and beauty. In fact, you know, sometimes we're not as good mm -hmm. at it as mm -hmm. others. You know, common grace allows any human being to be carriers of those things. And as Christians, we have a, you know, a biblical and moral um, obligation to, to 
discern. Um, we can't just pick up a book by a Christian author and assume it's going to be filled with goodness, truth, and beauty. And we can't pick up something by a non-Christian and assume it has none of that. Mm-hmm. We're, we have to be discerning. Um, and we are doing that all the time in less formal ways than maybe in the classroom or in reading a, a, a classic work of literature. Um, and the kind of tensions we have to grapple with when we're making those judgments about art and literature really are no different from the kinds of tensions we have to wrestle with when we are evaluating people Mm -hmm. and having conversations with a stranger on a train or with our next door neighbor or with someone Mm -hmm. who just comes to us like these you know literature is a reflection of some sort of human experience and so we need to treat a work of art in the same way we would treat a person affirming what is good true and beautiful and kind of questioning or you know even in our own minds we don't necessarily have to get into an argument on twitter although many do but we can still discern in our minds what they're saying that maybe departs from biblical truth and goodness and beauty there's that's such an important point this you know we're made in the image of god we live in a world that he made and said is good and Mm -hmm. he hasn't rescinded that judgment and all humans do and we, we can all reflect that so we can expect I like that, the good, the true, and the beautiful, even, or maybe even, and sometimes especially from non-Christians around us, and yet because of the fall, mm-hmm. and also just our own finitude, we're going to expect failure in that regard, too, mm-hmm. right? So, so I'm, I'm interested in how you say that there's, this isn't just impressionistic, it's not just a mm-hmm. relativistic soup that we're all just kind of having impressions and responding with our personal preferences. You know, how can we talk about? Can you get, mm-hmm. walk us a little bit through yeah. what that object, yeah. those objective standards mm-hmm. for beauty <laughs> in artful language might be? Sure, sure. One of one of the ways I often start the class is to write on the board the old aphorism, "Beauty is in the eye of the beholder," which mm-hmm. a lot of people just think is a true statement. It's just a mm-hmm. fact, and yeah. it's not a fact at all. It's actually, you know, no one would have thought that before the 18th century, <laughs> uh, because the ancients really understood that there are objective qualities in things that constitute that we would call beautiful um including like the golden ratio fibonacci's numbers which is a which Mm -hmm. is an objective numerical set um and so it's not easy to do but this is some of the reading that we're doing in this class um for example we're not we're not reading Aquinas, but we're reading about Aquinas. And, um, and he talks, uh, you know, for him, when he talks about the beautiful, um, he talks about proportion and clarity um, and a third thing that I'm mm-hmm. not remembering now. But, you know, so the, like mm-hmm. there, there's a trinity of, of, of qualities that sort of encompass anything that we might say um, is is beautiful. Other writers and thinkers have, have said other things. And, and, um, and, and that's sort of what we have to set out to do is say, okay, so what what are sort of the transcendental transcendentals of mm-hmm. even the beautiful? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and another emphasis that we are um, we're homing in on in class is how how the true and the good and the beautiful can be distinguished from one another, mm-hmm. but also actually can't be separated mm-hmm. from one another. We mm-hmm. might be attracted to something. We might feel the pull of the beautiful, but if it's not true, then it's a false form of beauty. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even the the pagan ancients understood that. And yep. I, th- I yeah. think that we can learn from them. So truth, goodness, and beauty is a kind of platonic triad. And you mentioned Aquinas, all things lead back to this scholastic. So 
Maybe I can ask an apologetic question. <laughs> so, do, do you really? Wow. Such a great do you really mean that? Well, you know, I, I like I like my scholasticism as okay. long as it's okay. reformed. Um, you know, but um, maybe to ask an apologetic question, question especially um, in the contemporary age, the reason why people think beauty is in the eye of the beho- beholder mm-hmm. is because of our globalized, pluralized sort of consciousness. So, how would you respond to someone who says, "Well, these are Greek." Greco-Roman Western scholastic rules or standards that you bring to the table. What about other cultures, other texts? How do we therefore adjudicate them on the basis of pretty contingent historical standards? They would say. So, mm-hmm. how would you respond mm-hmm. to that? Yeah, I, I would say I think that, and this this kind of um, mm-hmm. these kinds of questions come up in in class. Yeah, I would say that that what we are prone to do, I won't even say is like Western Protestants. I'll say is speaking for myself, I guess, like 21st century American evangelical, Um, you know, we tend to, we love to talk about objective truth and objective morality, um, objective everything. And as we do, we we tend to, there's, there's just an underlying assumption that this is very narrow. Right. And, and what's objective is is tied directly to our own culture and experience. Well, when it comes to aesthetics or, or culture, I mean, I, I think that the objectives, uh, the objective truths are, are pretty wide. So when Aquinas talks about clarity or, or radiance, um, what illuminates or radiates in one for one person or one culture in one time or one place is might be different mm. from what is illuminating in our own. So there's a tension between the even these objective qualities have a sort of um, subjective application within our own experience and our own culture. And so there, there's just always this tension. Mm-hmm. It's interesting in biblical studies classes we talk a good bit about this, and there's there's always a point. You know, for instance, in the prophets class, we're reading. We're reading artful language, right? The, the, mm-hmm. the, the prophets are both prose and poetry, but they're, they're always uh, very stylized and they're meant to be persuasive and I would even say compelling and beautiful at, at points, you know. Um, and it's even with our students who are well-churched and they're trained up and they've got their Bible verses memorized and they know all this stuff, they come in and, and there, there is a realization, I think, pretty quickly that they're used to reading the Bible as a mine for theological truth. Mm-hmm. They're used to reading it as a mine for, for the moral and what, what to do. And yet they're totally unused mm-hmm. to reading it as art. Mm-hmm. And it's, 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 a, it's an important idea. It's kind of a groundbreaking idea that God did reveal himself textually but he also revealed himself artfully i mean mm-hmm. it's 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 artful and, right and uh, yeah, there's a professor who used to teach uh, of the university of maryland just north of here adele berlin a jewish scholar and she had this great phrase a great turn of phrase that before you know what a text means you need to know how the text means mm. you know and it's 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 kind of groundbreaking to our students and that's sort of sad but the other thing is that also as they start doing it mm-hmm. you can just tell there's like lights go on mm-hmm. and they realize oh this is not only really interesting but this is something I want to teach and I want to preach mm-hmm. out of I want mm-hmm. I want I want to be able to access this mm-hmm. and that's good for churches because churches need pastors and biblical teachers who are sensitive to those aspects mm-hmm. of the biblical text too not just the bible but literature in general right i mean everything that we not just works of art, but buildings and cars and and mm-hmm. objects have both a, a form and a content. Mm-hmm. And we're, especially as Christians, we're just always concerned with the concerned with the content, the message, mm-hmm. the truth, right? Yeah. And we forget the how. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, poetics is really 
focused more on the how, but also how you can't really separate the form mm. and the content. The medium is the message, as Marshall McLuhan mm -hmm. said. Um, and kind of to tie these two questions together, um, you know, poetics, the shortest definition of poetics is literary aesthetics. And if we focus on that word aesthetics, um, mm. You know, there really is an interplay between the objective and subjective, the whole if a tree falls in the woods, you know, and mm -hmm. there's no one to hear it, does it make a sound? Yeah. Or even just um, that controversial blue dress that was out on the internet a few years ago. Is it blue or is it gray or whatever? Yeah, like, And people yeah. were objectively, you know, they thought they were objectively seeing one color and other people see another color because of the way it plays. I don't know the science behind mm -hmm. it, but mm -hmm. it can actually seem objectively like one color to one person and another color to another. So all that to say that our bodies, our embodied experience, um, does affect how we, not just how we see something, but even what we see and what mm -hmm. we pay attention to. Right, so right. we are enculturated in ways to attu be attuned to certain things, like you said, reading mm -hmm. the Bible just for its moral truth or its doctrinal principles and not for the how. We're trained that way. And so aesthetic experience, we might think it's entirely objective or subjective, but really there's an interplay between the two. Mm -hmm. um, and that that's, I think, I think that's where most science and philosophy is now. Um, and we need to kind of get the church there to understand that interplay yep. as well. So maybe you've mentioned some of the kind of almost immediate practical reasons and um, cultural reasons why we should be engaged with the form and not just with the content, should care about it. And you mentioned the doctrine of common grace. Can you think about other theological doctrines maybe that actually not only allow us to engage in the form and also think about aesthetics, but actually... Um, creates an imperative to do so. Hmm. Sure. I mean, just the doctrine of the incarnation hmm. okay. um, models for us the fact that embodied experience, which literature is really the the um, concretization or the embodiment of abstract ideas, hmm. right? It, 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 it's like taking an idea or an, or an experience or a possibility and putting flesh on it through words. So the doctrine of incarnation um, celebrates that kind of engagement with the world of ideas through an embodied form. Um, I'm, you know, I'm Baptist, so I'm not big on the sacraments, but there is also like a sacramental theology mm -hmm. um, that we can find in, you know, just the act of appreciating and understanding literature. Um, and, you know, there's some good Catholic writers, um, critics, you know, everything goes back to the scholastics, right? right? But even like fiction writers who you can, like Flannery O'Connor, one of my favorites, mm -hmm. who who is a Catholic, and you can see her sacramental theology um, in the way she acts out uh, the scenes in, in, in her short stories and, and her characters who who are participating in acts of grace like beyond their ability or will or understanding and yet grace just like bursts in on them um, mm. the way that she understood um, grace entering us through the sacraments. That's great. Yeah. So or to use Watkins language yesterday, we can diagonalize between the universal and the particular. Yeah. Or, Explain yeah. that to the well, audience who is not who's not here at this time. I mean, but, well, the way in which you know Karen was talking about it just yeah. now is the fact that there's concepts and embodied concepts that Christians are, are concerned about because we see that in the incarnation, where right. the Son of God, who is eternal and universal, at the same time became flesh in a human being, and so in a particular human being, we see the norms of all of reality. Yeah. Um, so 
I reflect as, on that quite a bit. Just go ahead. I was going to say, as Chris, Wa- Chris Watkin was here last night. Chris Watkin was here last night, and yes. so he was talking about this, that he calls, he labels this diagonalization. Right, because when you are, um, when you don't have Christian revelation in the back of everything, you tend to dichotomize things that belong right. together organically or harmoniously. So I think, you know, in Christian philosophy, we see this tendency towards universals on the one hand or mm. particulars on the other. Mm. The particularists are the empiricists, the universalists are the rationalists, right? But actually Christianity says reason and experience can go together in a very unique way. And again, the incarnation motivates us to think about concrete universals, to use an idealist phrase now. We can use this classics and the idealists together, right? <laughs> all right, so. Um, it's RTS, bringing people together. That's right. right. We, are, we are winsome after that's all, right. you know. I kind of wanted to pick up on this idea of literary aesthetics because it's one of the things that was sort of mind-blowing to me kind of in my theological process. Um, I always loved, I always loved literature as a kid. Um, I I, I might have loved a a different and less sophisticated form of literature than you teach, but I, you know, I just loved, I love stories. I always love stories. Um, and then I kind of fell in love with theology, and these felt like two different things. And I fell in love with interpreting Scripture, and these felt like two different things. And you're mm-hmm. supposed to go to Scripture and, and mine it of its data, mm-hmm. of, its, of its theological propositions. And then, of, and then kind of as I, as I studied hermeneutics and interpretation and kind of looking at the way in which the how mm-hmm. of the way the Bible writes— um, you know, you find all these metaphors, you find all these mm-hmm. pictures, all this literary stuff that's going on that we, we're talking about in the Gospels today, how the, the way in which Luke and Matthew tell the story is different, and that mm-hmm. actually has an impact. And so it, it kind of clued me into these literary aspects of Scripture where uh, my theology isn't actually adequate to mm-hmm. capture it. So, mm-hmm. you know, as one example, the Lord will come like a thief in the night. I can theologize that. You know, I can turn that into a proposition that's tight. You know, the Lord will come unexpectedly. But when I, I lose that literary aspect, that picture, that metaphor, you know, I lose something of the impact mm. right, that, that right. it has. So in what ways, I guess, this is all um, precursor to, you know, in what ways does that attentiveness to literary aesthetics shift mm. the way we approach the Bible? How has it helped your understanding of what scripture is affirming. I mean, you teach in a, this is wonderful because you teach literature in a theological context. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. W- what's the, the, the inner, uh, the inner, what, what am I looking for? The interface, the interplay. The interplay, sure. Right. Interplay between those two worlds for you. Hmm. Well, it goes back to what Scott was saying that, um, you know, that the, the Bible is Besides being God's word, God breathed, God inspired, it's also a literary text. I mean, he could, the whole Bible could have been written in just like mm-hmm. flat prose from Genesis to Revelation, but we have all these forms. So clearly, um, the Bible is teaching us through the how, not just the what. Uh, we we don't tend in the modern age to be, you know, attuned to that. And so on a macro level, we want to pay attention to the genres. But even just on a, on a micro level to understand how language works and to understand, and, you know, this is, might be controversial to some people, but I'll just say it anyway, like all language is metaphorical, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And so... And so even when we talk now, as a Baptist, I'm getting on like some thin ice here, but um, like to even talk about taking the Bible literally, like what does that really mean if we understand that all language is metaphorical? Um, Now, you know, we 
just as in reading a literary text, um, we have to actually understand the literal level before we go hunting for themes and symbols mm-hmm. and messages. We have to actually know what yeah. the words mean, maybe look them up in the dictionary, understand how syntax works and grammar and all those things. So we do have to understand the literal level and we never want to negate or take away the literal level. But then we can then we can say, okay, so what effect does this have that this metaphor is used? Or, you know, I like the example that you use because I don't get the rush of fear and panic with the word unexpectedly yeah. like I do mm-hmm. with like a thief in the night. I mean, that just... That, that um, evokes all kinds of aesthetic responses in me, mm-hmm. uh, which is what um, what language that is well used does. And when we're tuned to to that on even you know the, the word level, the metaphor level, um, I mean, reading works of literature is is employs the same hermeneutical and critical thinking skills that reading scripture does. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've found in, you know, over two decades of teaching that um, some of the students who get most passionate and who's, who tell me about their, their the experience being life-changing, they're often like the biblical studies majors who are taking an English class or doing a, a, an, a, a double major in English. Um, and I, I've just watched so many of their 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 lives kind of crack open when they they yeah. start out studying the bible and then they end up studying literature and and how one helps the other yeah there's aristotle has this category for poetics and for art that i think if i remember the greek word i think it's xenicone it basically means foreignness or strangeness mm-hmm. you know and that that shows up of course throughout literary criticism uh, a, a Russian formalist named uh, Viktor Shklovsky mm-hmm. talked a lot about it and, and I won't even try to pronounce the Russian word that he used maybe you know it um, but um, it, but usually translated estrangement or defamiliarization something like estranilla mm-hmm. or something forgive me Russian audiences um, <laughs> but it showed up and actually I touched on it in my doctoral work probably because we were talking about the fact this is a I was talking about the fact this is sort of a category of art that it it, it makes something that was familiar strange mm-hmm. to you. Mm-hmm. And like you said, you could, the, the Bible could have said, Jesus is going to come and you won't expect it, mm-hmm. right? But by using that metaphorical language, and yeah, it can be an actual full-on metaphor or simile, or it can just be a turn of phrase, right? Mm-hmm. It, it can just be a turn of phrase, an interesting way of saying something. Uh, the way Shklovsky describes it, I love this, is he says it, it slows down the process of perception. It mm-hmm. creates a friction between the observer and the thing mm-hmm. observed. Uh, he, he calls it tortured speech. And because it slows you down, it makes you see the thing anew, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You know, you don't just say, be rooted in the word of the Lord and you'll see uh, you'll see some fruit to it, right? He says, he says he's like a man planted by a stream, a tree planted by a stream of mm-hmm. water who bears fruit in its season. You have to stop and think, what is, how's a man like that? How's a woman mm-hmm. like that? And then it, by making you slow down, you perceive it mm-hmm. in a new way. Mm-hmm. You see, uh, perceive it afresh. Mm-hmm. You know, and that to me, both in the reading of Scripture and understanding that, because I think so many of us blow, just try to blow past, past the metaphors. You can get mm-hmm. the theology mm-hmm. out of mm-hmm. it. Get the theology. Mm-hmm. But also in preaching and teaching, unfortunately, mm-hmm. I think a lot of mm-hmm. pastors don't realize the value of art in their mm-hmm. preaching and teaching, mm-hmm. right? And kind of saying things in a way that your audience won't just hear the information, right? Mm-hmm. but... You know, as people says, mm-hmm. you know, Tim Keller says, mm-hmm. preach to the heart that we're actually causing you to experience mm-hmm. to see Jesus afresh. Mm-hmm. And that's so important and something that, um, sadly, at least, at least in our Reformed tradition, hasn't been at the forefront <laughs> of our interests, perhaps. So theology so, is not just like propositional extraction. 
I yes, no. that's wow. what you said. You heard it here. That's what you All said. Right. <laughs> I'm just reiterating what you're, I think you're, you're saying. Enough, I'm a messenger in that one. You're absolutely. No, I, I, I think that's absolutely Well, right. yeah. It, it's a point of self-criticism. I was trained in analytic philosophy. We're not exactly the best at well, artful, witty, metaphor-making. Well, there's a, there's a reflex to it, though, isn't that? That having clear, exact speech, if you can marry those things together, artfulness and exact speech, that's a, that's a wonderful You mean gift. diagonalize? Yeah. Oh, gosh. All right, gosh. All right, all right. Mm. <laughs> I love the idea of, like, slowing down um, forces us or allows yeah. us, I guess I should say, to learn in a way that we don't when we're going too fast. And then also, you know, there's sort of a basic of, of pedagogy that we learn better and retain better when we discover yeah. something. Yeah, so right. a metaphor makes us discover the connection. That's good. Um, yeah. It points and we look as opposed yeah. to just like putting it in front of us. So, um, so, so we actually can discover how something, you know, if, if someone says something is like something else, we have to stop and say, how is it like that? Yeah. And so we have this sense of discovery Absolutely. when we make that connection. Yeah, that's beautiful. You also have a new book that's coming out, which is talking about the evangelical imagination. Mm. What does that mean? <laughs> Well, I think some people, when they hear the title, they might be disappointed when they read the book because this book is really not about Tolkien and Lewis, although mm -hmm. they are mentioned. Um, what I'm really talking about is, is captured in the subtitle, how stories, images, and metaphors created a culture in crisis. I think that's it. Um, so it's really, it's when I'm talking about the imagination, I'm actually talking about Charles Taylor's social yeah. mm. imaginary. So it's yeah. really, it's really more like the evangelical social imaginary, but that doesn't make a catchy title. And also, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I do explain what the social imaginary is in the book because I really want people who, uh, for whom that idea is new to understand it. Um, and so, you know, basically Charles Taylor and, and others, um, talk about a social imaginary sort of a shared um, cultural pool of images and metaphors and stories and myths and legends that usually work on like the precognitive level mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know they're 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 underneath the surface and they they're driving and de developing our desires and our appetites and motives often before we without our even yeah. realizing it um, and so then I go through and identify what I think are sort of the driving metaphors and images that have defined evangelicalism since its origins in the 18th century across the transatlantic. I'm very, you know, Western-centric, but evangelicalism began in Great Britain and came across to America. Um, so identify what I think are sort of the driving images and metaphors and why they came about and why they are good and true and where they perhaps have gotten off track and mm. been distorted, um, thus the culture in crisis. <laughs> That's the funny thing about metaphors. You can't really control them. Yeah. You get to speak into them and speak mm -hmm. them, but everyone else gets to do mm -hmm. that too. Mm -hmm. And so there's this, um, to, uh, as long as we're doing Russian literary theories, there's this unfi unfinalizability to them mm. that, uh, creates this ongoing conversation. Yeah. And, that, and that's Bakhtin. Right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. And you're not formed by way of the propositions. You're formed by the mode and the how in the precognitive level. Right. I love that you use that term because it's something that Bobbing actually talks about quite a bit. So can you describe some of those things that sure. actually have formed the sure. evangelical imagination? 
Yeah, so my first chapter, after the introductory chapters, um, is on the metaphor of awakening. I don't think that needs a lot of explanation. Mm -hmm. We've heard of the Great Awakening, right? And the Bible talks about, you know, awakening sleepers. Um, And so I talk about that but i think the then the next chapter is actually about conversion which of course is not just a metaphor it's an actual thing and um i do believe in conversion i think it's really Mm -hmm. important um and evangelicalism you know part of what birthed evangelicalism in the 18th century is that that in england if one was born uh 99 percent of the people born were automatically considered christians and members of the church of england like there was no conversion necessary Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um and evangelicals revived this important doctrine and it was really good that they did and i'm i am we need to be converted individually but if we focus so much on conversion you know and have the mass walks to the altar and collect the decision cards and leave everything after that and abandon the discipleship um, aspect of it and the sanctification Mm -hmm. aspect of it, we can end up emphasizing, I think I say what we do, uh, conversion um, so much that, you know, we lose something. And so the other thing I do throughout the book is I just talk about like some of the pop culture or literary, you know, ideas that have permeated our imagination um, that, that illustrate conversion or mm-hmm. illustrate awakening or um, domesticity is another one. Um, improvement is another chapter. Mm-hmm. Um, and I end my next to last chapter is on reformation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I know that you guys are so fond of that. Big, I am too. Yeah, yeah. That. Yep. And then end yeah, on the yeah. rapture. Yeah. Well, the Westminster Larger Catechism talks about improving on your baptism. Um, I miss that. Well, I need to go back and add well, there that. We go, yeah. Oh, <laughs> and then wow. suddenly Karen's okay. going to become Presbyterian. No, but um, yeah, it's about just the idea that you can actually improve on your infant baptism because the, the way you act, the exercising of your faith actually makes good on the promises that was given upon you and your infant mm. baptism. So um, is that what you mean by improving or is that another term? Um, well, I talk about improve you know, because I, I part of my thesis is that evangelicalism, even as a subculture, is part of the culture, right? Ah, I mean, that's okay, that's part it. of the problem. Yeah. Um, and so, improvement is a is a secular concept. You know, Charles Taylor talks about it a lot in a secular mm-hmm. age, and I incorporate that. But then we get to, I mean, we go from that to self help. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, yeah. And so that would be sort of the a distortion of what might have been a good right. thing. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. That's so important. It's, it's, it's super interesting, too, because some of these metaphors, these kind of primary metaphors, are also a bit in conflict. You know, mm-hmm. historically, awakening and reformation have not always been whispered right. in the same <laughs> sentence, right? right? And right. yet we hold these intention, and right. sometimes we hold them intention because we've got so many people in the church mm-hmm. and everybody's got kind of their own things that they're emphasizing. But there is a sense, and yeah, you you, you hold mm-hmm. holding these intentions, sometimes even contradictory right. metaphors, mm. right? And, and and that's part I mentioned that yeah. in the in the you know, when I'm talking about Charles Taylor's ideas and some others that they very much are in yeah. contradiction. We do, but we don't know that. That's why you know we're such confused, conflicted creatures. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. I'd be interested in in particularly that when those those metaphors are intention or as as kind of the language shifts mm-hmm. um, as. as and the conversation shifts as a result. Mm-hmm. H- how do you navigate that? I, I think that's one of the, the challenges of, of, of teaching, of pastoral mm-hmm. ministry, of being a voice is, you know, on the one hand, recognizing 
and seeing the the point that was there, you know, mm-hmm, the, mm-hmm, what it meant, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but also being able to engage that at the same time. Do not say Diana. Go- d- d- what? Diana. <laughs> Don't say Diagon Alley. <laughs> Diagon Alley. That's right. <laughs> Different book. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. being able to see what it meant, but seeing at the same time that that's part of a present conversation mm-hmm. and that I don't get to determine what these things mm-hmm. mean in an absolute way, but I have yeah. to speak into it mm-hmm. in a way that's intelligent. Like, Yeah, I mean, you're, you're kind of asking the question that it took me writing the book and turning it in and editing it to answer. Like, like what's, so what's the solution? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right? Yes, please. And, and as simple as it is, I mean, I think what I, my modest goal in, in writing this book was really i mean because these are unexamined assumptions mm-hmm. it's like i think half or more of the battle is like recognizing that they're there recognizing yeah. that there's a reason why we emphasize conversion and if we know that reason then we can better maybe see its limits or or what we're yeah. leaving out um and um just i think the metaphor that i use in in the opening chapter draws on you know a, a popular movement term today which is i don't mean the literary one but i mean the religious one deconstruction like a lot of people Mm. are deconstructing Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um and i think that's actually a helpful metaphor because i think you know i've taught young christians long enough to realize that that they you know there's a whole whole two or three generations of young people brought up within evangelicalism who were never allowed to examine underlying assumptions never allowed to examine the sort of structure underneath the floorboards Mm -hmm. um and when they discovered that they were there and maybe that they were rotten or maybe you know or defective in some way they kind of they're tearing down the whole house. And so yeah. I'm saying, okay, let's let's peel back the the wallboards and the floorboards, look at what's underneath yeah. and so that we can determine you know, what's sound and what's unsound. Yeah. Um I think I write it better than I just said. But you know, that, so that's the metaphor. I think it connects to like the strange making idea too. Mm. I think that's part of that process and and Ricour calls it the new naivete that mm. that you you have these experiences or or you're you're exposed to new ideas that actually bring what you knew you know, what you know you knew, mm-hmm. into question, you know, and, and suddenly mm-hmm. you're, mm-hmm. you're at the spot of, I didn't know. Well, I thought I knew how planes fly. It's because of the, the lift that they are, uh, that the shape of the wing gives them. But then how do planes fly upside down? Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't, you know, I don't know. Maybe I didn't know anything. Maybe, mm-hmm. the, and, and and that's kind of the move of deconstruction is we we start to question those values, those mm-hmm. assumptions, mm-hmm. and then end up saying, okay, I never knew. Yeah. Right. But Ricoeur is Ricoeur is saying, no, you've reached new naivete. You you're at a place of question. Mm-hmm. You're at a place of investigation, mm-hmm. and what your goal is not to throw everything out. Right. But to grow and to mature and to and to find answers and to inquire and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's the answer. Hopefully, I'm doing that. Grow and inquire, and seek the answers. That's good. Well, and, and you can only do that. I, I I guess this is where I really like some of the, some of your work is you can only do that by that process of yeah. of engaging the conversation, asking those mm-hmm. questions. Like you, I mean, like you just put it not leaving those assumptions unexamined and not being afraid to ask those kinds of questions. And what we've seen, so we're non-denominational, we have a lot of different kinds of students coming through here. Mm -hmm. And 
one thing I have noticed is that you have we have people kind of who are who, who deconstruct or kind of partially deconstruct and then sort of get rooted again and it's good and, you know they're they're feeling comfortable about where they end up. Uh, you also have others who I think recognize they, they suddenly come become aware of those unintended consequences mm -hmm, you're mm -hmm, talking mm -hmm. about like decisionalism has unintended consequences revivalism mm -hmm. you know reformed reformedism whatever <laughs> has unintended consequences and they become aware of it and it does cost cause them to inquire mm -hmm. and they start to discover wow when I when I get away from just the, the Christians who are right around me, and I see like what has been said over the last two millennia in the church, and start realizing, <laughs> wait a minute, these are my blind mm -hmm. spots, but they weren't their blind spots. Right. You know, right. and you start to now have maybe a little bit more of the communion of saints stepping into your converse, your internal conversation, and that's one thing we've noticed is that some of these churches, and and, and honestly, believing communities where there was like deconstruction happening at a mass community level. Um, mm -hmm. People are all of a sudden getting to say, we, we, we thought that we were the beginning and the end mm -hmm. of how to read the Bible, and we suddenly realized there's all these other voices to listen to, and they're mm -hmm. really helpful. Mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. And so that was another part of it, is kind of recognizing, I need to expand my imaginarium a little bit. Mm -hmm. Maybe right. my uh, uh, the themes and the motifs that I've been highlighting and using as kind of guiding, mm -hmm. switching switching language here, but sort of mm -hmm. guiding metaphors may or may not actually be the only ones out there, right? right. There's some right. others that right. I can bring in from the church, even. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, so the book comes out uh, August eighth. August August eighth. Yeah. Great. I'm counting the days on my calendar. Apparently. I'm excited about it. Keep an eye out for that. Yeah, it's published by Baker Brazos. Brazos, yes. Subsidiary mm -hmm. of Baker. Yeah, our <laughs> friends at Baker and Brazos are listening. <laughs> okay. Hi, Bob. <laughs> um, Retweet this. That's right. Yes, please. Uh, so I have a question just kind of like, again, at the getting Christians interested in literature. You know, mm -hmm. So we've kind of, we've been kind of up here in the upper register mm -hmm. here of ideas, but you know, one of uh, passion I have is that we reclaim, as you were saying, Scott, like some of that heritage that we've lost, mm -hmm. the, the images um, that come outside of Christianity that Christianity has embraced, the the imaginarium that Christianity has created, mm -hmm. like all of this mm -hmm. stuff. So, where do pastors, teachers, church mm -hmm. leaders, where do they go if they if they have been uninterested in the uh, literary arts before? Mm -hmm. Um, or if they want to grow in that, I would love to grow personally in my patience for poetry. You know, where do we, where mm. do we, where would you direct? Hmm. Where do we, where, give us a, a starter kit? Hmm. Well, books, one, obviously. yeah, <laughs> one, one, one gift of the internet is that these communities of readers or developing readers or wannabe readers can find one another. So there's so many resources out there. There are podcasts about literature that mm. you can find, close pods, um, Close Reads podcast is, is, is one of my favorites. I've, I've been on there a couple of times. Um, and, um, you know, you can just, you can find them at podcasts, YouTube video, lectures, everywhere. But, of course, if you want to just sort of dive into the text 
itself. I mean, that's mm-hmm. that's what I've written about. I have the six volume series that you mentioned before, and they actually are designed to be like taking a, a college class with me on the on these works of literature. That's great. Um, it, but even people who've known and loved these works and who've read them said that the, it's enriched their understanding as well. So I've tried to kind of have something for everyone in those introductions. I have no spoilers because this is the thing about reading fiction is like that first time experience of mm. like discovering what happens. Mm. I don't want that. Most introductions talk about what happens and and Mm -hmm. i don't so if if you're interested in classic novels that's a good place to start um in terms of poetry um you know i'm not getting paid to say this but um there's actually the best college textbook out there is called perrine's sound and sense and it's you can go on on amazon or anywhere and buy a cheap old edition and it's just as good as a new one and there's just instruction in there and questions that gives you like kind of a a, an array of poetry from different eras and different forms to introduce you to it and i think that's a great just book to buy to help you know how to read poetry Mm -hmm. um and the other thing that i would say i say this all the time and it's again so simple but so counter to everything. I think a lot of people go wrong in reading literature um, if they're new at it because they don't understand that literature is meant to be read slowly Mm -hmm. and attentively, right? Like when you go to the National Gallery, you don't zoom around the room, (laughs) right? Looking at it like you're just trying to catch someone in a crowd. You stop you know, not not every painting, but you stop at the paintings that catch your interest and you look at them and you observe and you try to see what the artist saw and how they portrayed it. And so, so much of the reading we do is so fast, whether it's an email or Twitter or, you know, a blog, we read it quickly. Literature is meant to be savored. It's, you're, it's meant to pause you to go back and go, wait, what happened in that sentence? Or did I miss something? Or I need to reread this. Um, and so if you read one good book over the course of a year because you've read read it slowly mm. that mm. is a huge thing if you haven't read any at all Absolutely. Yeah. so you could only read a few books then how do we decide well you can start with mine <laughs> um, <laughs> um uh i you know i do think there's so many good books out there no one's ever going to read a fraction a healthy fraction of them so just pick something you know pick something that is on a topic that interests you or from yeah. a culture or era that interests you uh, and if you don't like it 30 pages in you have every ounce of my permission to put that book down and pick up one that does grab your interest um, because there are so many good books out there. You can Google lists. Like I think the Modern Library list of 100 best novels is a great list. Mm -hmm. You could just go and pick the one that interests you. Um, And yeah, or you can just ask me on Twitter and maybe I'll answer. Do you read any living poets? I'm putting, I'm putting yeah, you under the gun. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I do actually. Um, Ada Liman is a is a poet that I have been reading lately. Uh, Poetry is not my big genre. Novels are and short stories are the, the genre I love most. Yeah. Um, let's see. Um, Billy Collins is still alive. He's a great introduction to I was poetry. Say, he's he does, a great introduction, he, isn't he? He is, and yeah. he does sometimes like live readings. Um, now and then, of course, yep. especially during the pandemic. Um, so yeah, so he's, he's a good starter. Pack. All right. I've got, yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. writing them down. In um, my notes. and they, there was just an edition, uh, like, I don't remember the title, but it's something generic, like, uh, 
best Christian poetry of the 20th century. Yeah. I endorsed it, but I don't remember the title. Really, they're not all alive, but it's, it's a really great collection of yeah. Christian poetry. That's great. Malcolm Geith is probably one of the best living poets today, and he's mm. also Amen. a devout believer. Yep. yep. So read him. Ordained priest. And, yes. And PhD. He's one of those guys who kind of did it all along the way. And is still but doing it. Great recommendation. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Karen, Thank so you. much for being with us this week and uh, for this recording as well. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, everybody else. Great conversation. Great to be with you all. Look forward to being with you next week. Until then, take care.